Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. Time and time again, you hear stories of very methodical, very savvy, very careful business folks that acquire this asset. And many have described these assets as relatively simple businesses. Where there are big investments, there are big responsibilities. And dealing in the realm of highly specialized categories requires the advice of a true specialist. Once they get their hands wet and see the complexity of being successful, both on the commercial side, as well as on the field or the court, how challenging a business this can really be. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. Every investment comes with plenty of responsibility, but in a multifaceted market like sports and entertainment with various revenue streams and worldwide integration, navigating this complex landscape can be overwhelming. Today's guest is helping his clients make sure that all bases are covered, literally. Today we get to sit down with Chuck Baker, who chairs Sidley Austin's Entertainment, Sports, and Media Group. Chuck represents investors in professional sports, businesses, and teams, and advises on sports and entertainment transactions. He has decades of experience in the sports industry and has represented sports franchise purchases across multiple leagues, including the NFL, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, the NBA, the NHL, the National Women's Soccer League, and multiple European football leagues. Recently, he represented Genius Sports in its multi-year strategic partnership with the NFL and the Canadian Football League, and has also recently advised on the acquisition of minority interest in the Los Angeles Lakers, the Charlotte Hornets, as well as the six-plus billion-dollar purchase of the Washington Commanders. Chuck has been highly recognized in the field of sports and entertainment law by multiple national publications. Most recently, the National Law Journal named him to its 2022 list of sports gaming entertainment law trailblazers. The Sports Business Journal also named him to their 2021 Power Players list, and Law360 added him to their 2020 sports betting MVPs. Chuck is an active board member for the March of Dimes and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. He's also an adjunct professor and advisory board member at the University of Miami School of Law and a distinguished lecturer at NYU's Tisch Institute for Sports, Management, Media, and Business. And Chuck was also an associate for former Senator Dollar Bill Bradley, one of my all-time favorite Knicks. Let's enter the arena with Chuck Baker. I graduated from law school in the late 80s, and it was a time when the mergers and acquisitions boom and hostile takeovers were were raring. And so had the opportunity as a baby lawyer to work on some of the most exciting mergers and acquisitions at the time from uh, RJR Nabisco, which was actually my, my first deal. And I remember that 
Thanksgiving escapade well. I was at the absolute bottom bottom of the totem pole, though. So trained you know, at, at big law firms on Wall Street early on in M&A, hostile, friendly, buying in every different industry segment, but, you know, got a a sound training. And then in 2009, had a chance to work with one of my mentors helping Steve Ross buy the Miami Dolphins. And it was, you know, I would say just another acquisition, except happened to be in a space that really married my passion as a as a former college athlete and somebody with athletic kids with M&A. And so uh, after that deal closed, and there were a lot of stories that went with uh, acquiring the Dolphins, and kind of based on the economics of, of the leagues and the teams, and the fact that for the most part, the big four leagues weren't making any more, I guess lucky that a lot of capital would be flowing into the space. And so I was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to build a U.S. sports practice together with two other partners from other law firms at a big global firm that was looking for an exciting practice area that in their minds could bridge the ocean between the U.S. and Europe, where they had always represented the EPL, the Premier League, since inception. And they chose sports smartly. It's a practice area that uses really every department of the law firm, from M&A to finance to antitrust, litigation, employment, tax. It's really a, a full breadth practice. And we were fortunate. That was 2010 around the same time that much smarter people, private equity professionals, hedge fund professionals, and other very, very successful people also recognized the economic dynamics of this industry and began to invest. And so we built a big practice from sort of 2010 on, which I was fortunate enough to co-chair in the middle of 2022 while working with Todd Boley trying to acquire Chelsea. I had the opportunity to join Sidley Austin, where we are now. We brought the sports practice with us. We're about 20 lawyers focused exclusively in sports now with sports lawyers in New York, Chicago, LA, Miami, and importantly, London. Uh, We are part of a bigger global group, entertainment, sports, and media. Uh, Most of us view that really as one ecosystem because without sports, the cable system would probably crumble and sports needs media as badly as media needs sports. So currently co-chair a practice group of about 40 lawyers at Sidley across the globe, and it's been meteoric. I know you've worked on a lot of high-profile sports transactions, and the value of these teams and franchises from an outsider looking in just seems to be you know, on a meteoric rise. What are some of the secular trends driving the deals these days? So it's a terrific question, Tom. I think importantly, you need to you know start by understanding simply su- supply and demand. So if you look even just in the U.S. at the big five leagues, they average about 30 teams a league. That's 150 teams. So long as the supply remains limited and we have an increasing number of billionaires, folks able to afford these assets, uh, you're going to you know continue to look at the effects of the supply demand curve. On top of that, 
And importantly, we have collective bargaining in the U.S., which as great as it is for the players, essentially puts a cap on their wages, which is to say, so long as your expenses are fixed, even if they're increasing, you know, based on a percentage of revenue, but the revenues keep rising primarily on the back of the media deals, which the teams share, your revenues and presumably your earnings are going to continue to go up. And so we've seen that with the increasing media rights deals over the last 5, 10, 20 years now, sports as an asset class has risen faster than just about any other asset class over that period. We continue to see this. And and I think, uh, Tom, importantly, you know, sports is an uncorrelated asset class, which means that whether we have inflation, deflation, market crashes, valuations continue to increase. And so uncorrelated asset class, increasing demand, limited supply, the tailwinds continue. And I'm always curious about the people who you represent that invest in the industry. They get to be uh, billionaires or multi-billionaires because they're risk takers, obviously, but also very careful with their money. Is this like a super emotionally charged purchase where whether I'm spending two billion or two five, you know, if if you have the wherewithal, it doesn't matter, or or some of the buyers just like cold hearted businessmen and they don't care what the asset, they don't care if they're fans of it, they just they just want to allocate part of their portfolio to it. You know, it it matters a ton. It matters more than you can imagine. I, I can't tell you how many you know, hugely successful entrepreneurs, folks who have, you know, been born lucky, folks who have made their money in finance, approach this asset, approach acquiring a piece of a sports team or an entire sports team in a methodical business-like manner and get carried away with the asset itself. Time and time again, you hear stories of very methodical, very savvy, very careful business folks that acquire this asset. And many have described these assets as relatively simple businesses. But once they get their hands wet and see the complexity of being successful, both on the commercial side, as well as on the field or the court, how challenging a business this can really be. And, you know, the stories of owners, you know, saying that regardless of what companies, what private equity firms, what businesses they've run before, no matter how important those businesses were to their headquarters, their towns, that owning a sports team, being a steward of this community trust is more impactful and more emotional and has a bigger effect on their daily lives than any any other business that they could have possibly imagined acquiring. And it happens over and over again when these dispassionate business folks end up acquiring a team and taking such pride in the asset. One recent story. So as you mentioned, Tom, we were fortunate enough to represent Mitch Rails, Magic Johnson, and some others acquiring the Washington Commanders. This was a bunch of business guys coming together 
to, for the most part, acquire their home team asset. Mitch Rails, Josh Harris, both grew up outside of D.C. I had the good fortune of attending a game with Mitch and so uh, went to the game and just watching uh, him walking around, talking to fans, talking to other folks interested in the team, it's transformational. And so it's it's really uh, to see how rewarding and challenging this can be for clients is, is made it a really remarkable area to practice law. It's a big change. I wanted to ask you, Chuck, about what you're seeing from a deal flow standpoint. What sports seem to have been the busiest, like in terms of deals and why? What are you seeing in terms of deal flow and what part of the market seems to be fired up? Soccer has been exceedingly active for a couple of reasons. So soccer is a global game, most popular sport in the world. It's played world over. We've got teams, obviously, in different leagues and different levels of leagues throughout Europe, the Middle East, South America, Asia, and beyond the U.S. and Major League Soccer and the USL and the women's leagues, there is the opportunity for investors to invest across the board. And so we've seen tremendous amount of activity in Europe from Chelsea, which we helped with just two years ago, down to you know Wrexham, which may have more fans, frankly, than Chelsea it was obviously a much smaller deal, but a Hollywood-driven transaction. So soccer has been super interesting and super active. There's been a lot of interest and a lot of investment. On the women's side, the NWSL has recently expanded with new teams in the Bay Area and Boston, and some very, very prominent investors have come in behind some of the NWSL teams. And I think, I, I think frankly, Tom, the emphasis on the women's game is another area that we're going to see a lot of going forward. But the other, the other league, obviously, besides the NFL, where we've seen tremendous investment, is the NBA. The NBA can continues to be a juggernaut of global growth. As most folks know, uh, the league is in the middle of negotiating its new media rights deal. There are expectations for a significant lift on the current media rights deal. And I think we'll continue to see globalization of the NBA, increasing valuations there. And then again, women's sports is something we continue to focus on. Spring of 2022, Sidley Austin helped carry out one of the most significant deals in sports history as representatives of Clear Lake Capital in their acquisition of Chelsea Football Club. With the weight of fans, players, stakeholders, and the country on their minds, I asked Chuck how Sidley shepherded such an intense transaction. You know, there was so much pressure on that deal. When you think about it, in addition to the fans and the team and the league, that transaction had geopolitical implications, right? The reason that Chelsea was on the market was because of what was happening in the geopolitical landscape and why this asset was frozen. And so it was a world event 
at the highest level that triggered the seizing of that asset and the sale of that asset by a combination of the private and public sector. So you had the British government involved together with investment banking firms and law firms shepherding the sale of that asset. Importantly, among the dynamics driving that somewhat atypical auction of a sports team were the fact that the proceeds needed to find their way to specific pockets, meaning specifically to charitable endeavors that the British government directed. And so, you know, amidst what is typically a fairly complex auction process for a European football team, you had the geopolitical implications, a war going on, and the government's involvement. And so under that microscope and with the public watching day in and day out that transaction, it was it was fairly remarkable that we were able to you know keep it on track uh, as well as we were and achieve the result that we did for all the constituents. But I think it was a remarkable transaction for many reasons. I think, Tom, we're seeing similar geopolitical implications with the PIF PGA golf merger that's been afoot. That is, as somebody who's been involved there, as complex as Chelsea, if not more so, uh, particularly given the number of constituents on that one. And, you know, this sports business is, you know, we're all fans, right? But when you look at what's at stake here on some of these deals, it's, it's really fairly remarkable. Yeah, I mean, we might as well stay on that train. You've got kind of the F, you know, Formula One in Vegas and Miami and, you know, interesting developments in soccer in the U.S., Lionel Messi, you know, joining Inter-Miami and obviously heavy Saudi investment into sports. It's a PR issue in, in some of these cases. But one thing is for sure, it is going global in a big way. You obviously have a great platform to handle that. But is it, you know, it just seems like in the last, three years, it went very international, very quickly. And do you just see that sustaining itself, kind of that trend continuing? I do. And I think it's it's driven by a, a, a couple of things, Tom. So obviously, we have Middle East investors from Saudi Arabia, Dubai, UAE, which you know, frankly, has been investing in sports for a long time from, you know, the Manchester City deal to the establishment of City Football Group. We were able to help them there. And then with New York City, Melbourne City, Yokohama City, and a bunch of the city teams to the Saudis now uh, deploying a lot of capital in golf with Newcastle and the EPL, the Qataris most recently becoming the first sovereign wealth fund to invest in the NBA and the NHL with their investment in monuments sports, uh, Ted Leonsis's group that owns the Capitals and Wizards. So I think the globalization of sports is a trend we will continue to see. I think we're going to see it in an even more profound way as the leagues continue to open up their doors, particularly in the U.S., to sovereign and institutional investment. Recall you know, sovereigns and uh, private equity firms and institutions have always been permitted to invest in European football uh, and global football generally, but not in the U.S. It's only since 2019 that the U.S. leagues, other than the NFL, have started to permit institutional capital. And so with that, 
We've now seen private equity investing across the leagues, and I suspect we're going to see sovereign wealth, you know, under under restrictions that the leagues impose doing the same. Yep. Well, speaking of uh, professional money and uh, private equity, I know uh, a unique deal you worked on uh, was the Arctos Sports Partners investment into kind of the various ownership stakes in the NBA and the NHL. What was your involvement there and any kind of unique lessons or insights that you gained from working with Arctos? So Arctos has been a great client for Sidley, great professionals to work with, and they've take, taken a very interesting approach. You asked me earlier, Tom, about what's it like when these billionaires or significant high net worth investors who've been very successful in their other businesses have a chance to buy you know, their team, their local team, you know, the team they grew up rooting for, representing the professionals at Arctos. They have taken a very, very disciplined private equity approach to these investments. And so, you know, as opposed to being driven primarily by passion, they're driven by sound economics. They view these teams, if you will, as really platform investments. Because, you know, for example, if you buy an NBA team, you're buying 132nd of the league because re- remember the teams split their media rights and the other NBA national and international rights. So you're investing in the NBA itself, you know, a global growth media property, not unlike a Disney. You're investing in the team and its local economics, which could include its local media deal, ticket sales, and the other commercial revenues. You could also be investing in their stadium or arena assets. And we see a lot of folks now focused on the real estate side of sports investing, what we call sports anchored development. You see what the Atlanta Braves have done at the Battery, what Chicago has done around Wrigley, number of teams we could talk about with the sports anchored development. But Arctos has approached this very much like a platform private equity investment where they see opportunity for significant returns over an extended period of time. These are not short-term hold and flips. These are, you know, 8, 10, 12-year investments. And what Arctos has offered current owners is their expertise. So rather than just another high net worth individual coming in, what Arctos provides with their board of advisors and the professionals within Arctos is a full understanding of the commercial assets of sports teams, from ticketing to sponsorship to media rights to stadium and ancillary development. And so it's those uh, that expertise that they can bring into the mix uh, to help drive revenues and profitability of these clubs that has made them such attractive investors for these teams. Well, you mentioned uh, Todd Boley, another prolific businessman, founder and CEO of Eldridge and uh, part owner of the Dodgers, chairman of Chelsea, among uh, many other ownership stakes and, and operating roles in, in sports and media. Do you think three years from now, there'll be more institutional private capital formed into kind of singular focused players who are just in this space? Do you think there'll just be like maybe too much capital running into it? Or do you think the industry is growing? There's enough opportunity for everybody to make outsized returns. So I think, Tom, as long as media rights continue to go up the way they have, 
even if there's a slight softening and they don't go up you know, quite as quickly as they have been, that there is enough commercial opportunity out there globally for these firms to be able to continue to invest successfully. I look at Fenway Sports. I look at Todd and Eldridge. I look at Redbird Capital and what Jerry Cardinal has done. And I continue to believe that from multi-club ownership groups to investing in other sports media and entertainment assets, that there is still a lot of opportunity. You know, one space that hasn't been explored or exploited perhaps deeply enough is the college sports landscape. I think Smart private equity is looking at the college landscape now and trying to determine uh, where the best opportunities will be. I suspect that we're going to see a lot of investment in the college space uh, going forward. And so I continue to believe at least for the next five, 10 years, we're going to be in a robust sport, media, and entertainment market cycle, kind of notwithstanding how deeply some of these institutions have already invested. Yeah, you talked about media rights. And when I read this, I thought it was a typo. The NFL sold domestic media rights for over $100 billion in a decade-long agreement, which is just incredible. Certainly, what are the dynamics at play there? But also, how does like streaming options play into all this? You know, it just seems like the content itself is so valuable. And however you consume it might be changing over time. But streaming is obviously a force that's here to stay. What's your take on how it all fits together? So the NFL is a juggernaut, Tom. There is there is no doubt. And you know, people talk about NFL ratings on a on a daily, weekly basis. How did Monday night do? How did Sunday night do? You know, how are the games on Sunday or the 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 European games faring? But if you look at you know the media ecosystem and and you look at what's watched, sports continue year after year after year to be 95 or 96 of the top 100 view programs, even in election years, year after year. The NFL accounts for about 95% of that. The NFL is still, you know, 98 out of the top 100 shows. So, you know, fairly remarkable. And everybody feared cord cutting and unbundling and what's going to happen to the cable system as more and more folks stream. But I think what we've seen with streaming is it's enabled the teams and the leagues to actually reach a broader audience than they had and a more global audience, frankly, than they had previously been able. And so rather than, you know, cord cutting and unbundling, I think what we're really seeing with more Streaming options is a rebundling. More options for sports consumers as people, you know, migrate away from the traditional cable bundle. And I think it's going to enable these leagues to continue to grow their fan bases. You mentioned women's sports, Chuck. What are you seeing there? Obviously, and my follow-up question is: women's sports, you kind of see much more on, uh, you know, ESPN and and in other uh, places, which is great. And then, you know, you're seeing like MMA and pickleball and uh, Frisbee and even a tag league. And I would tell you from personal experience, I played tag as a kid for free, no sponsors. But all of this is evolving so fast and it's pretty exciting stuff. What's your take on all of it? Now, we grew up 
around the same time, Tom. So I, I played tag and running bases and monkey in the middle uh, for free as well. And hopefully we never see a monkey in the middle pro league. But um, <laughs> So true. <laughs> seeing women's pro sports get the attention that they deserve. You know, women's soccer players are, you know, have historically been the best, if not among the best in the world uh, in the U.S. And I think that investors are finally, you know, recognizing over the last, you know, really last five or six years, how quickly the women's sports could increase in valuation with the audiences that they command. And in terms of you know return on investment, I suspect you're not going to see an NFL team, a recent trade, you know, go 5X in five years. I don't think you know, the commanders will trade for 30 billion in five years. I think women's investments can continue to accelerate at that rate. And it's not just soccer, it's basketball, it's volleyball. And so I think we're going to continue to see a lot of accretion in value in the women's sports. How does all this affect the fan experience, Chuck? It seems like it's going to get more expensive, but it might be also more entertaining. You know, viewing at home is so good now that the teams and leagues need to continue to concern themselves with the live product. Look, I I think winning helps, as we've seen, you know, across the NBA, the NFL this current season, winning puts butts in seats and winning, you know, breeds a lot of great cultural value. So I think it's important that what happens on the court, on the pitch, on the field continue to be a quality product and that the entertainment value continue to deliver because it's getting increasingly expensive. So these are issues the leagues are focused on and and should continue to focus on, but it's important. My last question, Chuck, is to uh, ask you about a trip that you just got back from in Cancun. I know I wanted to ask you about that because uh, you're kind of uh, pumped up coming back from uh, from what seems like a great win for you. <laughs> Thanks for Just back from Cancun where I'm part of a multi-club ownership group, which means I'm a small investor in a group that I've put together led by former Houston Astros and St. Louis Cardinals, six-time World Series winner, Jeff Lunau. And we own clubs in Mexico, Spain, Dubai, Czechoslovakia. Slovakia and a development business in Africa. And we were uh, fortunate enough to uh, win the title, the championship this past Sunday with Cancun FC, also known as the Iguanas. It was amazing. We took this team in our second season from 17th out of 18th uh, to champs. We beat the three-time defending champs who had moved out of Cancun to Mexico City, and we are on the verge of promotion into Liga MX. All four of our clubs are currently in first place. Maybe it's beginner's luck, or maybe we're doing something right, but it's it's been exciting. I'm used to playing with other people's money, and it's it's been fun to play with just a little bit of my own and to actually be winning. Investing in the field of sports means becoming part of a bigger picture, and it's a dedicated business endeavor that offers up lucrative returns, but it's also a project that requires personal passion and communal involvement. Sidley Austin recognizes that all of these pieces rely on one another, and with years of experience, they're bridging the gap between business and pleasure for their clients. Welcome to the arena. We're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. 
The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Chuck Baker for joining me on the show today. Sidley Austin has a remarkable track record of securing major deals throughout sports history. With their keen focus on industry trends, they are perfectly positioned to seize on the growing markets and opportunities that lie ahead. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.